Welcome back to Podcasting the Urban, a five-part series where we turn the academic gaze back on to our own podcasting practice. I'm Dallas Rogers from City Road Podcast. In this episode, we pick up our discussion with Joe Sherwood-Spring, Nicola Joseph and Lorna Munro. In the first part of our discussion, Joel, Nicola and Lorna talked about the black history of community radio in Sydney and the need for Indigenous voices in the public debate about urban change. In the next part of the discussion, we move on to the politics of voice and representation, the importance of media diversity and the relationships between podcasting and research. Enjoy. Just mind-boggling, really. These two are, are very special, and and I, I mean, I'm that you both. I mean, they're both incredibly knowledgeable and and well-informed and articulate, and really, so they should be. If you knew their mothers and their aunties and and all of them. I mean, I was taking children to Marawina when they were there um, every day from the Skid Row families of. Um, the community. And so, you know, I actually remember Lorna's mum being pregnant when she was having Lorna. In fact, I was having Hannah at the same time. So these are the 88 children who um, are really born of that time Mm. and place and politics. So it's Mm. exciting. Let me play for you a clip that I think about when I think about the sounds of, of the young, engaged Aboriginal people in Sydney at the moment. And you can tell me if I'm off the mark here. Now, songlines are carried like a fire stick. They need to be protected to be passed down or nursed like that proverbial fire in the belly. The next band we're profiling expresses that idea perfectly. Dispossessed are a Sydney-based trio. Their genre is angry. If you wanted to put them in a box, here's one of their own design. They call it post-colonial death metal. Rage-filled lyrics and ear-splitting guitars cut through with a global perspective on race, power and colonialism. Joel, what do you make of those types of sounds and the meeting of kind of academic ideas and a different type of, I guess, performing those ideas and putting those ideas out there? Um, I mean, yeah, it's like, it's like, this is the kind of thing that you kind of come up against so regularly when you talk about the knowledge of these things in in this city, the knowledge of Indigenous history, dispossession, colonization and then the way that we are all complicit in the continuation of that conversation you're angry like that's that's the point it's like i was having this conversation yesterday it's like you you you're finding yourself i mean myself and other people finding ourselves in a process of continually trying to actually educate people into why they should be like we should be more upset than we are and and so to say these young black kids which dispossessed are all. Um, I don't know when that recording is from. It's a different band now, and that's for the better in a lot of ways. Um, that's one thing. Um, 
but still holding in there's other bands like I'm wearing a shirt today for Divide and Dissolve. They're another um, kind of like destroy white supremacy um, for our listeners. Yeah, they yeah. they are they're another they're another um, black and Australian death metal band coming out of um, well Melbourne, um, Geelong, and um, LA. Um, Takia and Sylvie are playing next week as well. Um, and they do really amazing stuff coming from the same position. Um, it, it's, it's kind of just seems like it's, it, it makes sense, right? Like there's a lot of kids who are really have access to, um, I mean, that's the gag with colonization. It's always been about kind of building up and removing people from access to information and that narrative and that story so that people didn't have an ability to be able to contest unrightful claims to the land um now we're experiencing generations of kids who like myself we've come from a really strong and supportive and um pivotal foundational point where we are educated uh, our kids have i mean our parents have pushed us to understand these things and we're trying to kind of push them into what we can now and i i think dispossessed now in their current formation um will really be able to stand up in in that way um and yeah, kind of they're 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 great. I mean, what do you mean by it's academic? You know, like that. I, I just, when, are you when, trying to claim something that maybe? I'm, I'm yeah. not sure that I'm not convinced it's academic. Yeah. You know, I mean, my kind of I mean, well, let me say I'm not convinced it's solely academic, mm. and and that that kind of really complex thinking doesn't exist outside of those spaces. I mean, mm. some of the stuff that black consciousness movement, for example, you know, that I read feeds my current research, I think, much more than um, the academic work that's mm-hmm. that's been done. So, I mean, this, the, the notion that kind of complex ideas only exist within the institute mm. institutions is, is kind of a bit silly. Yeah. I mean, as much as I have time to sit in the library and read a lot and try and think up complex ideas. <laughs> um, you know, I would say that Lorna's mum, for example, sister and brothers sat around kitchen tables and probably did way more research than I've ever done. Mm. You know what I mean? And um, could probably write a much better literature review than me. Yeah. yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at here. The You know, that these knowledges maybe aren't part of the academy and we need to detach the idea that, that academics produce them and that they're produced through other means. Uh, let me play you another clip, Nicola, then, and I want to get you to reflect on maybe what you are doing with your research. So this is a early radio documentary about public housing estate in South Chicago. This is the Ghetto Life series, I'm Ray Suarez. You're about to hear two radio documentaries by a pair of extraordinary young men, Lee Allen Jones and Lloyd Newman. First, Ghetto Life 101. In March 1993, Jones and Newman, both 13 years old at the time, were hired as public radio reporters. They were given tape machines and microphones and asked to spend a week recording themselves, their families, and their neighborhood. Lloyd lives in the Ida B. Wells public housing development on the south side of Chicago. Lee Allen lives just a block away. This is their program, what it's like for two boys growing up very fast in a very rough part of their city. They call this documentary Ghetto Life 101. Good morning, day one. Walking to school, leaving out to door. 
This is my dog, Ferocious. You know why he got that name if you hear him bark. <laughs> I see the ghetto every day, walking to school. Guy standing on the corner, burning the fire. Be here summertime, wintertime, spring, fall, every day. With the drink in the hand, probably some white port. Will it pee? Jack Daniels, E&J. I live here. This is home. What's up, Henry? What's up, Dudu? This is my walk every day. So take me on a little journey through my life. Here's my life. Here's So I guess we should try to draw this back to is or can podcasting be a research method? And you have produced a uh, documentary called There Goes the Neighbourhood for Radio Skid Row and you're currently doing a PhD. What do you make of that question that podcasting and radio can be a way of creating knowledge about something like the city or urban studies? I mean, certainly, like, you know, Having moved from the in radio industry into um, the university, you know, you become aware of, oh, right, when I used to make those documentaries back at Radio National, you know, and be, be paid to spend weeks doing them, unlike at Skid Row, um, you realise just the level of research that um, goes into them, the, the, the work that goes into it. Um, I think things change for me in the academy, though, in terms of research, because I mean, my, this is just my experience as um, a bit more than a first year now, although I can't use being in first year as an excuse anymore. But it just seems to me like the forms are really quite restrictive within um, academic research, like for it to be credible. Whereas I think in um, radio, we can use really different forms of doing things. So what I'm researching, it's quite interesting to, to listen to that stuff, isn't it, is um, is how we hear race in Australia. So like, and, and you know, how... Sonically. Um, how, and, and where the sonic colour lines exist, like where there are things that um, people like Lorna and Joel, Indigenous people can and can't say without getting reactions, um, especially these days. You know, we're seeing it all the time um, in public broadcasting. So within community radio, I think um, there's a real opportunity in Australia at the moment for us to um, to take over, I think, some of the work that was done maybe in the 80s um, in Radio National, in radio in particular, where you can be quite experimental with the form. Like I would have been much more experimental with that with that than um, the producer. I mean, we have to remember the producer of that wasn't black, I'm pretty sure, from the name Suarez. Mm. I'm only guessing from the name. Um, that's my SBS experience there. And um, 
and also the choice of music and things would have mm. probably been his. So mm. it kind of had a sounding like, you know, you could see the guys. What <laughs> Actually, I was thinking kind of more flared jeans and it was very 70s. So my guess yeah. is the producer was white and older yeah. and let like me play you, Let me play you a clip of uh, <laughs> African, African-American. But can I just yeah. say that what that does, like thinking about like our own history of listening to African-American culture, I mean, whether you're a young person – and I'm not young, but I still love rap. I mean, my honours thesis was on rap. And, um, you know, whether we're listening to that or we're listening to funk or all of the television that we're watching, including brilliant stuff like Atlanta, um, we're kind of listening to it through th- through that prism. And so these two young kids are so cute, though. It's very <laughs> endearing. Let, let, let me play you a clip of... Um a couple of African-American podcast makers and see if we can spot a difference. Stories about Civil War monuments have been in the news all summer. But the monument that bothers us the most doesn't feature Robert E. Lee or the Confederate flag. In fact, it features Abraham Lincoln. It's about how high is that, maybe 20 feet? Yeah, probably about 20 feet. Lincoln is kind of looking down on us. His hand is extended. Got this black man on his knees in front of Lincoln, maybe trying to stand up or rise. Still got a shackle around his arm. It looks like maybe the the enslaved person might be shining Lincoln's shoes or something. The statue is called the Freedmen's Memorial. It's in Washington, D.C., put up in 1876. It's so much in this statue. I mean, the, the man... The, the freed man who may be rising, he's got a broken chain on his arm, but he's dressed like a, he's only got like a, a loincloth. He, otherwise, he is, he is absolutely naked. Meanwhile, Abraham Lincoln is in a full 19th century dress coat, pants, boots. Lincoln is still standing over the dude, and in a way... This doesn't really give any credit or represent the agency of black people in freeing themselves. Black people were trying to free themselves, rebel from slavery before the Civil War even started. I hate this statue. (laughs) I hate it too. I'm Jack Hitt. And I'm Chinjirai Kumanyika. This is Uncivil. Where we ransack America's history and discovered that the past is never really past. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! Uh, Joel, are you going to be ransacking Australia's history in your survival guide? <laughs> yeah, we'll try it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's about, yeah, it's about kind of we've been given the opportunity to kind of let rip and, and give... I don't know, our perspective on what's going on and how we've been conditioned to think and feel and how those things manifest in the city all of the time. Uh, I think that's the, that's like the main thing that we're trying to mm. just talk about is like, I mean, yeah, gentrification is, it's a very complex issue, but really it's just, it's just further colonization of land. It's, it's, it's further extraction. It's further, um, you know, it's the same thing. Exactly, exactly. That's the whole point of the title. The title is taken from a play that I've been writing, actually, and it's about taking, it's about surviving gentrification based on how our old people have survived colonisation. So, um, you know, we're ransacking Australian history just by thinking mm. that way, just mm. by honouring and valuing 
our survival because that's something that's not celebrated enough in this country. Mm. People don't want to talk about it. White people don't want to talk about it because they don't want to acknowledge their white guilt that their ancestors probably paid a part in those massacres and the genocide mm. that happened here. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, yeah, we are ransacking it and I'm sorry, but I really don't give a fuck. <laughs> exactly. I reckon that's an excellent spot to just pause for a minute and uh, we might give the speakers a round of applause before... <laughs> We've got time for a few questions. So who would like to ask a question? Okay, Nicole, you'll have to come up here actually and speak into the mic. Thanks guys, fascinating. I wanna ask who's the audience for a survival guide and I guess for you know the different types of work you've been doing but starting off with survival guide. I think, I think the audience is um... I think the audi- what what the survival guide is made for is for our own people that are living um, in thank you um, that are living in Redfern Waterloo that are facing this that are being moved on and don't have access to information to be able to put it all together um, within a, chronolo- a chronology and be able to actually read the subtext of a lot of the things that we're being told. Um, I said the other day at the talk that Joel put on um, for the Biennale is that confusion is actually one tool that's been used by colonisers for a very long time in order to trick us. Taking away language and the way that we communicate is another very strategic move. And these are all tools that have been used against us. Therefore, how do we then reclaim that? How do we then use that to our advantage as colonised peoples that have no, you know, it has to be said that our parents' generation were probably the first generation of Aboriginal people in this country that were allowed to go to school. You know, it's huge. It's a huge thing in the history of this country. It's no small feat. Um, And, you know, I guess we have access to these things. We have access to these knowledges. We have access to strong black consciousness and thought. Um, So it's only an obligation and, again, a cultural obligation to be able to reiterate this back to who really needs it. Exactly, yeah. I think just the common threads that come up through the history and experience of how these things are done onto people continuously and and also like there's there's also a sense of I think acknowledgement and gratification I mean no gratification is acknowledgement within this conversation being told you know like we can we see that these things are happening to the people that we care about and the people that um unfortunately we're seeing not many people really think about and really think about how they can engage with changing that. So it's personally, I think it is definitely directed towards who we think needs this information the most. Um, but a byproduct of that, and, and that's kind of always, this is always the kind of the way that these things move is like, I think it's also very interesting for other people <laughs> to engage with this. And so um, there's, there's a controlled, there's a controlled way I think that we direct the information and use it, um, in, in all ways, cause it's going to have a wider audience and we really hope that it does because more people need to interact and intersect with this stuff. It's how you can, you know, it's how you figure out how to leverage your own privilege in life. You got to intersect with the stuff that you're doing. Um, and hopefully we can kind of uncover that cause yeah, it's like, it, we all play a part in it in our common day lives every day. 
think about it and then you can kind of start from there to think about how you might want to engage with a more just way of doing things. Yeah, I, I think it, it is for everybody but it's made for it's those people on the ground. But it is to. for everybody because colonisation and gentrification has affected everybody. It is affecting everybody mm. but there's two different approaches. There's a different approach for descendants of colonised people and there's a different approach for descendants of the colonisers. Yeah. And I think kind of... I, I mean, we haven't actually spoken about who the audience is. You, we didn't have any conversations about that, which is probably... I mean, I think the development of this has been really organic and that's why it's working so incredibly well. Um, but just it, it threw me back to when we started Radio Redfern, that one of the really big decisions made by people involved in Radio Redfern was that they weren't going to speak to non-Indigenous people. So that in terms of, like, we always teach when we teach radio, um, you have to think about the person you're speaking to because in radio you're meant to be talking to one person and everyone's meant to feel like the presenter's talking to them. Um, that's the technique of radio. It's a very personal medium. And so the Radio Redfin crew decided that the person in their imagination was always going to be a black fella. And they decided that because they thought that the displacement of white listeners was really cool. And, and it kind of did work because, I mean, it, it created this kind of that eavesdropping position, you know, where all of a sudden non-Indigenous people were hearing conversations between blackfellas and that freaked them out. Like, you, you know, my job, I was the manager of Skid Row, my job was to deal with the complaints. Like, you can't believe how many complaints we got from people saying it was reverse racism. That was the most common one. <laughs> Um, and, um, you know, I think that kind of, that also is the thing about, um, like if we compare research within the institution and, and the creativity that can happen in radio, it, it is that kind of positioning of voices and dislocating or displacing an audience, mm. um, can actually be a really good technique. But again, that's another tool, you know, yeah. that has been used in history. It has worked. So yeah. it's like that, I guess that's our approach is about looking at what has been used within colonisation and how we can counteract that and how we can use those tools and it's against also, I think kind of like one of I mean you tell me if I'm right or wrong but one of the things is that that blackfellas need to be able to have conversations in public spaces with one another mm. without non-indigenous people being involved like well it's such a threat you know and I even said this the other day you know I find it fascinating that. This country is afraid of um, mass convergence of, of black bodies. And I have to bring that back to the colonial history. No wonder you fellas are afraid, afraid because the last time we was allowed to gather, you know, colonisation um, invasion was stuck in, in Sydney for 20 years. It took them a good 23 years to get over the Blue Mountains. Um, you know, so again, I kind of understand that fear. Um <laughs> which, again, is another tool. Mm. One more question. Hi, I'm Jennifer. I teach here in the School of Architecture at Sydney. So my question is more about ethnography and the radio as a medium and sampling with sound. Like in your podcast, Survival Guide, do you guys play with sounds from the street? Do you mash it up? Do you remix it? In a way to kind of point back, like the clip that you played, um, Dallas, from, from Chicago, from the ghettos, right? 
do you kind of try to use sound to make more of a political statement and mm. do you try to kind of experiment with the medium a bit more? Mm. I guess is my question. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's where we're, that's what we're embarking on now, which is what's really amazing is kind of in the way of not really trying to plan it too much, but it kind of being this organic progression. We've found things that we think are really, really interesting and deserve more attention. I mean, last week we had a, we have a segment that we're going to be returning to. And if anyone wants to stick around, we might try and get you involved. It's called the cartography of Colin. And, and this is a conversation that we are having out on the street. Um, we started in Redfern with people and, you know, the, you know. T- tell us a little bit about that. So really, it's just we. Um, it's we've... mapping colonization based on measuring people's um, reactions, their willingness to, to speak. So you hit them with a word like what does white privilege mean to you? And then you kind of gauge what they say in response well, to we that. haven't even been talking about white privilege we've just been literally talking about the word white <laughs> right or you know as well as gentrification or or you know their in- and their land rights the, these were from the first segment and it's it's interesting because i think the idea like gentrification in and of itself it has of course a standard definition but not everyone knows how they intersect with that so it's really interesting to see what people's opinions are of it to get a more unified response because we know where we stand in it because we have called it what it is and what i mean what's really effective is kind of drawing conclusions or just inferences from where that is and then it's also a mapping project so we actually do you know we've mobilized the kind of colonial aspect of cartography to again kind of put these perspectives back on Redfern and the only people who would talk to us were white people and they all had these very different perspectives and and that's an interesting thing um I just wanted to give a shout out too to Evelyn Araluan for the title, um, another black academic um, who's studying at Sydney Uni, who heard what we were talking about and she's always ready to give an academic label to the things that I've been doing for a while, which I find amazing because I haven't been in these kind of spaces for like 10 years. Um, you know, I studied at UTS. I think your question is um, really important and like the thing is to be experimental, you've got to be like really highly skilled. I think. Um, at the same time, coming in with new minds, um, you're kind of free of the, the more conservative formats that might be used in podcasts. Um, but it was funny because actually one, when we, um, one of the conversations we had after I think the last production meeting I was at was once these guys, like they'd, Joel's literally learned how to work a radio studio um, just in the last few weeks, right? I think Lorna knows from Corey Radio. but I've been um, doing radio since I was 15 again through Corey Radio. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, just learning the, the technical skills is part of that um, process, but we're actually talking about the, the need to be really experimental in the form, um, which is once again one of those things that you can do in community radio that – is, is much more difficult um, in the rest of um, media production organisations and I think gets back to... I, I want to kind of say something about community radio if I can because this program is funded by Community Broadcasting Foundation and I happen to be on the Content Grants Committee and um, one of my things is, is in fact this, this really high-end production that um, brings different values to um, to the outputs. And um, I think that community radio has a reputation maybe in contrast to ABC of not being um, high-end production. 
and it, you'd be surprised at how much of that is actually happening and um, how much of it is experimental. So I certainly think things are going to weird things are going to happen. And and also they'll. I think that you will take risks too. You, I, I, mean, I think that we have to be very experimental. We have to take yeah. risks, and these are all the things that we do. Um, you know, and I think again, my approach and what I bring to the table is reminding people um, about how different it is that Aboriginal people work and think compared to how we have to perform in this society. Um, you know, and we're talking. You're asking a question about ethnography, and I think that radio is such such a validated and valuable tool to use within Aboriginal storytelling because we come from an oral culture. Um, you know, we we have been writing and we've been exposed to English for 230 years. We have learnt it and mastered it faster than anybody else on the face of this earth. But again, you know, there's a lot of things that we kind of have to feel our way through. Mm. And that's our, that's our responsibility. I th- think we might leave it there, actually. I think that's a great place to finish up. Nicola, Joel and Lorna, thanks for coming. Just another round of applause. And we're clear. (laughs) You're listening to the Podcasting the Urban series. Our panel discussion with Shane Anderson, Anya Kangeiser, Justine Lloyd and Miles Herbert is up next. And if you haven't downloaded the series yet, you can find it on your podcast app. Just search for Podcasting the Urban. You're listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.